Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. So for any loyal listeners, you heard me earlier this week saying that there would be a separate episode where Sona and I caught up on the finale of Succession, and there was going to be a Ted Lasso recap episode, and there was going to be a Barry recap episode. And a few things happened. One is, despite having the holiday, scheduling just got confused with family with other plans. But also, you're going to hear the Barry recap here which I won't spoil now because I plan to start things off with just an assessment of these three shows all wrapping up at the same time and my impressions of just overall about that. And then the details of the Barry recap, which are pretty brief. I have many opinions about the show and the season of the show and the show in general now that it's all wrapped up, but there's not going to be a very long plot breakdown considering how brief that would be. And Ted Lasso, I have many things to say about the trajectory of that show, but very little to break down in the finale itself. All that is to say that that content is going to be relatively short. So check the timestamps if you want to jump around. I'll be very explicit when there will be any kind of actual spoilers in the commentary or conversations. Before all of that, just a reminder that finally, I'll have that recap episode of the first half season of Silo, and we'll be then covering that show week to week. That's coming later this week. Friday, most likely, and we'll continue to publish weekly until that show wraps up. And this upcoming weekend, I'm sure this will be a big deal when it premieres, The Idol, starring The Weeknd and Lily Rose Depp. Now, will I continue to watch it week to week? All depends on the quality of those first couple episodes, which I hear are horrible. <laughs> so probably not, but we'll wait and see. But I'm sure many people will be tuning in, given the reputation of that show and the scandals around it already. Many people will be checking it out this week, and so will we. And we'll announce additional shows we might be covering here in the podcast throughout the rest of the summer. Okay, so in one single week, we have Succession, nowhere near, just to be clear, nowhere near the most popular show on HBO. This show, in its wrap-up, is averaging about 13% more viewers than last year, I think, a little, a million and change. Their previous season, for example, only had, across its run, a viewership total approximately the size of the first season, the first season of The White Lotus. And of course, The White Lotus season two pretty much doubled HBO's viewership across that series run. And guess what? This finale with all the hype, with all the conversation, this succession finale is bigger. It's the biggest season ever of the show, but nowhere near as big as The White Lotus, for example, maybe half that size, although I'm sure the audience will continue to grow over time. And nowhere near when you look at the phenomena of, for example, The Last of Us, which averaged over 30 million viewers over its run and is probably over 35 million at this point, or House of the Dragon, which also topped 30 million viewers average per week. All this is to say that there is a lot of cultural conversation around this show, and that matters a lot to HBO. The conversation around these shows is more important to them than their overall ratings and of course, it's also incredibly prestigious. It has won many Emmy Awards. So it matters from a cultural perspective. And if I had to bet money, I would bet that a decade from now, people will still be watching these seasons of Succession, whereas something, a phenomena like Yellowstone, are people, I mean, that may very well still be running, by the way, as a weekly soap opera, but will people still be rediscovering Yellowstone, watching it from the beginning? Most likely not, my guess. So there is some evergreen quality to some of these HBO shows. The Sopranos, The Wire, for example, shows that forever are perpetually being discovered or rediscovered, and they add succession to that pantheon. But I bring all this context up in the fact that this show has never been that huge a hit, and still, despite its cultural footprint, not that big of a hit from a total viewership standpoint. Also wrapping up the exact same week, just within days, on the same night, by the way, is Barry. Barry is somewhat similarly a critical darling, a unique experience, a high quality show. And its ratings trajectory has gone in the opposite direction. When Bill Hader first had this very easy hook, a hitman who wants to be an actor, sitcom length show, the ratings were pretty big, season one. But ratings here for the finale season, on average, even though they do set records here on the night of the finale itself, on average, the ratings have been below the levels of season three. All this is to say that these shows have a much bigger impact from a conversation standpoint, from a 
cultural critique standpoint than they do from a average Joe Schmo watching the show. And of course, now recording this on Wednesday, just premiering today, the final season, possibly now. Now this is ambiguous as to whether it's actually going to happen or not. Um, for the purposes of this commentary, Ted Lasso on Apple TV is done. At least this version of it is done. Let's, let's leave it at that. Whatever the show becomes, if it continues, it can't be Ted Lasso because Ted Lasso won't be on the show anymore. And of all the shows here, this is the one I probably have the most to say about. It's interesting in the context of Apple TV has a slew of new material. I mean, they have little by little. I mean, Apple obviously has a huge amount of money to invest. They have not had that many blockbuster shows. I mean, you have Severance as the most obvious example probably right now beyond Ted Lasso, which has also been very popular from a awards standpoint that have been extremely popular, have put Apple TV Plus on the map. And unlike a lot of these other streamers that are probably cutting back, especially at this moment when there's this writer's strike and Apple does have this huge wealth that it can invest in this. And they seem to be doing so that you have very expensive movies and highly regarded TV shows that are all premiering over the course just of the summer, for example, and fall as well. And Ted Lasso across this three-year run has seen its audience continue to grow. As a matter of fact, its most recent episodes have been there. It's most popular. It has continued to grow already from its very strong previous audience level. And yet, I don't know anybody who is either a casual viewer of Lasso or a huge fan of Lasso that would say anything complimentary about the direction of the show. Even people who are diehard Ted Lasso fans who love it, they call it one of their favorite shows, have said, yep, yeah, it's fallen off. And when they say it has fallen off, this is a critique that probably started in season two. I mean, it's only three seasons long. <laughs> Before I get into some of the negative commentary here around, mostly around the Ted Lasso wrap-up, I want to put out some recommendations for people to watch. Things I don't normally recommend here, usually talking about prestige TV, deep psychological reads on these characters. Not that I'm a very deep psychological reader, but what my point is, these are the shows I gravitate to. It's like, you know, dealing with familial dynamics, dealing with psychological trauma. Th these are just things that I can make more hay about. It's just things that are more interesting for me to converse about rather than what do you think is happening in the puzzle box show? You know, like, what do you think this symbol means on the ceiling of the cave? Mm, not as intriguing to me usually. And definitely on the lower list here are things to talk about, not necessarily things that are worth watching, but things I don't really talk about is comedies. So I have a few comedies that you may want to catch up on now that Ted Lasso's over. And one that's not a comedy, but I highly recommend. Okay, these are all available if you have Apple TV+. Plus. The first recommendation I have for a comedy you might want to check out just started recently. It's called Platonic. And this stars Rose Byrne and Seth Rogen. And of course, they've played a married couple in the Neighbors movies. And this has some of the same producers and directors as that film. And this is a really entertaining show. I've only seen the shows that are available, episodes that are available so far. As a matter of fact, I think there's four of them that are available. I've only seen two and a half of the four. But what I would say is I found this incredibly entertaining. The pilot was hilarious to me. I laughed a lot. It's called platonic because these are platonic friends. There's no romance between them, not at this point anyway. They were extremely close, male-female friends when they were in college. And they've drifted apart. They have families. They have very different lifestyles. And now they start to drift back together and they fall back into some of the dynamic, the positive dynamics of when they were younger and potentially the negative ones as well. And Rose Byrne and Seth Rogen just have incredible chemistry here. They're just so funny the way they just riff off each other, a blast so far to watch. So that's the first thing I'd recommend, 30-minute episodes, very easy to watch. Recommendation number two, and I've already recommended it here before, but continue to recommend it even as I've watched. It's probably half the season at this point. High Desert, starring Patricia Arquette. This is a lot of fun. Very funny. There's an actual mystery developing here. If you like The Big Lebowski, for example, it has big time Big Lebowski vibes. I know there's some negativity around this show. I think it's the whole Patricia Arquette of it. If she rubs you the wrong way, it definitely is going to be a limit on how much you appreciate the show. I personally like her playing these kind of over-the-top ditzy characters. I find it to be very fun. And everybody on the show is great. I think Matt Dillon is doing great work in his role. Brad Garrett, hilarious as usual. 
And the MVP here, probably Rupert Friend, who I've seen play very serious roles in the past. I know he's done comedic roles. I don't think I've seen him in that mode as much. He's very funny here playing this would-be cult leader. Anyway, I'm very much enjoying this. And the mystery develops week to week. The mystery continues to deepen. There's an actual mystery that is progressing in a logical way. Sometimes these comedic noirs, these investigators are bumbling into the discovery of the crime. There is some of that here, but Patricia Arquette's character, Peggy, is also a good investigator. She's actually putting the clues together and unraveling this crime, although in the most convoluted way possible. And by the way, continuously putting herself into more debt <laughs> along the way. She's trying to go bigger and bigger. This is one of the biggest jokes of the show to me anyway, is the fact that she has a bigger and then a bigger and then a bigger reward she's seeking out and somehow continuously putting herself into more debt and supposedly trying to improve her position. <laughs> so maybe there's some commentary there as well. Very much enjoy this. High Desert. Platonic was the previous recommendation, the Seth Rogen Rose Byrne comedy. Also Apple TV Plus and also on Apple TV Plus recently wrapped up the Big Door Prize. This show definitely flamed out over time. It has been renewed for a season two. I don't think it pulled off everything it was trying to do, but I found its sweet desire to deal with issues we probably are all dealing with in middle age in a very humane and often touching way to be way more effective than Ted Lasso, for example. So if you do like that vibe, do catch up on The Big Door Prize, which has a sci-fi element, which is kind of unexplored at this point, but that's not really the selling point of the show. And what I would say is check out the first two episodes or so. They're probably the best of the show. If you love those first two episodes, you will continue to at least like the rest of the, se the season. If you watch those first two episodes and you think it's too contrived and you're not really gelling with, with the different characters in the cast, it's not going to suddenly get better. So sample the first two episodes or so, and then that'll be a pretty good gauge for how you do on the rest of the show. For me, it did lose a lot of its luster by the end. I may not watch season two, but at its best, there was two or three episodes that I found very moving. And uh, for a show that once again, just like Ted Lasso, I think, has the best of intentions and is trying to deal with some of the ennui we deal with as we get older, I find it much more effective. So maybe it kind of scratched the same itch if you are disappointed with the finale of the Ted Lasso show. And my last recommendation, I've not finished this show. I've just started watching it actually, but it's so good. I'll make the recommendation now. On Hulu is a series called Welcome to Wrexham. I'm probably pronouncing that city's name wrong, but it's W-R-E-X-H-A-M. And this is a documentary sports series which documents Rob McElhenney from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and Mythic Quest, also an Apple TV Plus show, by the way, coming back for another season. But this show's on Hulu, just to be clear. And he wants to buy a soccer team. And this very long 18-episode season of the show takes place in the immediate aftermath of the first wave of COVID, which has completely decimated this small town where the soccer team exists. And Rob McElhinney wants to buy this sports team, but he doesn't have the money for that. Even these second tier, third tier soccer teams are pretty expensive. So he brings in a co-investor, Ryan Reynolds. That's right, Mr. Deadpool. And they go in on it together. And minor spoilers for episode one, but not a spoiler considering this is a whole show. They win the bid to buy this team and try to rebuild it. And I will not go into the whole ups and downs of it, but this is a true Ted Lasso story. You see these incredibly successful Americans who go into a culture they do not know. They buy this team. You get to know the people who own the bar. It really is a real world Ted Lasso, but it actually deals with soccer. It gets into the weeds of how these things actually work, how these tournaments work. It's much more intelligent about that part of the business. And I won't spoil things, but some pretty amazing Cinderella things happen over the course of this season too. And it's incredibly uplifting. And honestly, it has out Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso, inadvertently, I don't think these things were intentionally shot this way. They were developing in parallel and coincidentally affected by the, by the COVID uh, outbreak. And there is no <laughs> inappropriate uh, sex jokes. And there's some crude language occasionally, but you can watch this with your teenage children. 
it's really family viewing and it's really inspiring despite the fact that it's about millionaires. <laughs> but still it is, I mean, it does what Ted Lasso does not do for me. And this is also coming back for season two, I think before the end of the summer. So catch up on it now. It's available on Hulu if you have a Hulu subscription. And I think some places around the world, it's also available on Disney Plus because Disney Plus owns Hulu. Interesting that I guess there is a Ted Lasso, Welcome to Wrexham overlap there in at least the parent company. So yeah, should be easy to find wherever you are, whether in the US on Hulu or overseas on Star or Disney Plus, one of those networks. And it's called Welcome to Wrexham. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, <laughs> the name of that town. All right, that's on the positive side. Here, here's some positive and then some negative things to say about these wrap-ups. So just interesting that we're having all these shows wrap up at the exact same time. And what are my impressions of it? No spoilers yet for any of these shows. Most of you who listen to this feed probably heard my reaction to the finale of Succession, which in its conclusion was giving us something as viewers of that show, that seems completely appropriate. I think there is some awkwardness in the final quarter of that episode. The way everything plays out, I find some of the decision-making a little odd. Some of those decisions rub me the wrong way. But in general, we get a very good episode of the show. We get the payoff of seeing these relationships between these characters written continuously, continuing to write these characters in a very believable way. And still revealing even more layers to their relationships, even up until the very end of the show. And even in the fact that it gives us an ending that isn't one of those shocking twist endings, it feels very much in character with the show, where the stakes were incredibly important to those individuals, and yet not a very sexy finale. As I speculated a couple of weeks back in these recaps, that we were probably going to have a finale in the boardroom, and it probably wasn't going to be very sexy. And it's pretty much what we got maybe with a little more violence than I expected. So very much in character and very much up to the quality of that show in general. Alternately, we get to Barry, which I think gave us an incredible season of television here. No spoilers, once again, not yet anyway. And yet a finale that rubbed me the wrong way, not in its ambitions, but very much because it felt like it had a destination it wanted to get to and it got there. And the getting there I didn't buy in fully to how it got there. So I'll get into those specific details when I do the breakdown of the episode. My initial impressions were kind of contrived in its finale in a way that as outlandish and over the top as the show often is, never felt contrived in the way that that ending does. And yet giving me a very satisfying season of television and an incredible achievement overall over the course of that series. And then Ted Lasso, continues to get good ratings and may even continue in some other form in the future. And here we have a show that in its conclusion leans into all its worst tendencies. We literally have multiple heartstring pulling montages in the same episode. I mean, if it is a cliche to do that once, to do it repeatedly in the same episode is almost an insult <laughs> to the viewer, honestly. And now I am going to have spoilers for general spoilers for Ted Lasso's trajectory. So if you do plan to catch up with the show or you're behind on it, you may want to skip this part of the conversation and jump ahead to the next section. I can oftentimes be cynical. And I had heard back, this is during the time of the, of the pandemic, that, oh, you got to watch Ted Lasso, you got to watch Ted Lasso. I didn't have Apple TV Plus. I did eventually get it. As a matter of fact, I probably had it many times repeatedly and never used it because you know, if you buy a new Apple device, which I have Apple devices, you get a you know, three-month subscription automatically. At one point, I think it was six months or a year. And honestly, when I had the free subscription, I didn't watch any Apple content because there just wasn't anything on there that I wanted to watch. And then the first thing that everyone started talking about that seemed like it was in the cultural conversation was Ted Lasso. And this was during the pandemic. And we were here. I, I live in New Jersey where the pandemic hit hardest first. My wife's a healthcare professional. So she was, you know, it was a nightmare scenario. Everybody was afraid of giving people COVID. It's easy to forget, but in those early stages, practically every day, my wife knew somebody that she worked with, younger people oftentimes in their 30s and their 20s, even coworkers who were dying of COVID. It was a terrifying time. And then we had this lull in the summer and fall. We could start going out again. We could 
eat outside. I don't want to rehash all of that, but in this climate, as the winter was approaching and things looked like they were going to get bad again with that second wave in the winter, there was this conversation, oh, Ted Lasso, it was there at the right time. It made everyone feel great. And I was like, you know, I've seen shows like this before. I don't know if I, it's going to work for me. And finally, I gave in, started watching the show in season one, and it won me over. I had my walls up. I was feeling cynical about it. But I think it was seven episodes long. These are half-hour episodes, and they went down really easy. They were extremely overt about their niceness, about their agenda of niceness. And it was exactly what everybody needed at that moment in this incredibly cynical and toxic moment in culture, where not only culturally were things so ugly here in America and around the world, I would assume. But of course, you know, we were dealing with the fact that our lives had been completely disrupted and people we knew were dying. And here's a show that was a balm or an antidote to this toxic culture. Accidentally, of course, they did not know a pandemic was going to happen when they started producing this show. And even as much as some of those elements of the show were too cute and pushed too hard, it worked. It was touching and moving to me to watch that. So I got sucked in and Long story short, I got sucked into this Ted Lasso thing. Then came season two. And I don't think this conversation ever got published, but I had a conversation with a friend and sometimes guest here on the show, Sydney, who works in television production. And we may have never actually gotten around to publishing this conversation. It just didn't fit into whatever coverage we were doing at the time. I think we recorded it months after Ted Lasso finally wrapped up. And this was about season two. And I made all the critiques that I feel like maybe are, they probably were there even in season two, but more pronounced here in season three for sure. The episodes had gotten too long. The stories had gotten too shaggy. I had made a joke when I had watched season one of the show. My daughter loves Bluey, for example, which I also love. That's an incredible show. Only eight minutes long, perfect. An animated show on Disney Plus that honestly, if you have any kids or even if you don't, everybody should watch that show. Truly excellent show. But I felt like this was geared at the same family audience as the animated dog show, Bluey. That's Ted Lasso, I should say. And it's a show that has nudity, <laughs> jokes about sexually explicit material. And of course, the F word and the C word being used all the time. But even watching season one, I'm like, I wish they didn't have those extraneous elements in it because this is really a show for like an eight-year-old. <laughs> like These are life lessons for eight-year-olds, basically. So geared at the same audience with Bluey, but then impossible to show it to those people because of all the swearing and nudity and other crude commentary. So this was a joke I made in season one. In season two, it was egregious. And the worst part about it was that the episodes had gotten so long. And even though I was so frustrated with the show, it's like, why are these episodes so long? Why do we have to have these after-school special lessons that are not only the subtext of the show, it's the text of the show and it's telling you the message, beating you over the head with it multiple times per episode. And yet I recommended season two of the show because by the end, I felt they had a stretch of really strong episodes that were moving and they were still corny and they were still conveniently plotted and they were still, they still made some sketchy plot decisions about, for example, a romance between a boss and one of the employees. Now they're both adults, but as I said in that conversation, that <laughs> invisible conversation that never got published, if you flip the genders where the boss was an older man and the person in the sexual relationship was a younger woman, even if she says, no, I'm pursuing it. I didn't even know who I was talking to when I started talking to him. None of those things would matter. People would be offended if you just gender, gender swapped the relationship between that power dynamic. And yet it's supposed to be cute and romantic in season two of Ted Lasso. So that really rubbed me the wrong way. The show became more and more soap opera-like. These bloated episodes, 45 minutes long, even longer, which oftentimes felt like you were watching two shows in the same episode. Half the show would be The Office, like a workplace comedy. And then almost exactly in the middle, we'd have like the soccer match. Now, there were still shorter episodes every once in a while. So Season two had its ups and its downs, but most importantly, what season two had, and just a reminder now that I'm going to start getting into full spoilers for season three, what season two had was this realization from Ted that this overt positivity that he has, there's a dark side to it. There was 
aspects of his own past that he was running from. A psychiatrist becomes part of the cast. Completely underserved in this finale, by the way. Literally, she's not allowed to speak words <laughs> at all in this finale. I don't know if there was something contractual where she couldn't speak a line of dialogue because she couldn't say a single word in this strange final episode. But the psychiatrist character gets introduced in season two. We delve into Ted's backstory. We explore the fact that sometimes this positivity comes from this damaged psychology. And most importantly, is that Nate, although we see him as a villain by the end of season two, and there is a joke, this whole Empire Strikes Back analogy that, of course, plays out from season two to in, into season three. Although they drop that too, they don't really develop that regardless. I'm not even, I'm not, not, let me not even digress there yet. But I really thought there was chickens coming home to roost for Ted. Ted had taken Nate's coaching advice, had never promoted him, had never honestly given him credit for what he was doing. So I felt like here's an interesting element to the show. Even Ted being like the hero of the show and being never wrong in the eyes of this show, we see the limitations of that. We see his flaws and we see that in a lot of ways, he is the villain to Nate's outcome. I mean, Nate is culpable as well. He makes some bad decisions. But I read the end of season two to be like, this is a comeuppance for what Ted's done because Ted honestly has never learned how soccer works, still doesn't understand until the very end how some of the basic rules of soccer work. And it's like a, a badge of honor for him. And he regularly relied on Nate to help him win games and come up with his strategies. And Nate never gets any credit for that. So he turns to the dark side by the end of season two. This was all interesting stuff, I thought. Okay. Then we get to season three. Season three had all the problems season two had, even more egregiously, and then many other issues. It doubles down on trying to make inappropriate in-office sexual relationships cute. It doubles down on something that it should even toy with, I think, honestly. It spends even more in these really, I mean, the finale is an hour and 20 minutes long. It's almost as long as the succession finale. And nothing happened in it other than we watched a whole bunch of slideshows of tear-jerking musical montages, three of them, I think. The show has now become full-on after-school special. In season three, there aren't even plots and there aren't even jokes. From a plot standpoint, it's someone walking into the locker room and going like, hey guys, you shouldn't have sexually explicit images of the girls you hook up with on your phone. It's bad. That's always bad. They don't have consent. When you break up with someone, you should delete those pictures right away. I don't disagree with this, by the way, but integrated into the story somehow, don't just wag your finger at the screen and say, and here's your lesson for the week. I don't even understand who the audience for this is. By the way, maybe a good lesson for 13-year-old boys to learn? Absolutely. I do not disagree with that at all. But having a PSA as an episode of television that goes on for 50 minutes, I'm like, well, what are you doing over here? Issue number two, Ted Lasso is practically not a character in the final season of the show. His name is on the show. By the way, metatextually, Jason Sudeikis had a lot of personal issues in the past year or two. He's been going through a rough patch. He probably wanted the show to end in no small part because of all those other issues he's having. That's all fine too to, to sideline Ted in the final season. Those things may have existed, but there are ways to write a character out or to minimize a character on a show. Oftentimes a character will get pregnant. A character will get sick. There'll be a contract negotiation that goes badly and they're only in half the season or something like that. This has happened in the past. And there's no reason that people on the show, of course, should prioritize their personal well-being over making a season of television. But having Ted just wander into the room every single episode, he's still there every single episode. He makes some terrible pun, or he will just randomly quote the plot from a rom-com, and the joke is like all the guys in the locker room, oh, they've all seen When Harry Met Sally or they've all seen Sleepless in Seattle or whatever. That's a joke. That's the joke. You get it? Like they play sports and they know rom-coms. Get it? See how hilarious that joke is? And that was the level of writing in this whole entire season. <laughs> this, is, it's, I'm, this is turning more negative than I wanted it to, but it is kind of frustrating. I don't understand what they were trying to achieve with this final season of show and then to make it longer. And, and maybe they were contractually obliged to make it an hour long. Apple TV Plus does not run ads. 
So I don't know why they would need to make it longer. It seems like they probably chose to keep it at the length it was, you know, 50 minutes, an hour, an hour and 20 minutes sometimes. 12 episodes at that length is 12. I think it's 12. It's an incredible commitment to a show that does what? Like, what does it do this final season of the show? And maybe for me, the most frustrating part is there is no comeuppance where for Nate, for example, he's going to now go back and work for Richmond through some demotion. No one else on the show is expected to take a demotion to what? Just to be part of Richmond? I guess it's implied that he becomes part of, part of the coaching staff in the very final moments of the episode. But his only explicit role defined there is he's going back as like the, the locker room assistant. And maybe he's just doing some penance and we'll get his promotion later. But there is no crowning of him at the end as one of the head coaches or anything like that. So that just rubbed me the wrong way, this idea that, of course, Ted could be some ignorant guy that never learned how soccer works or football. He At least he can call it football now, finally. Doesn't know anything about the traditions of the area. Is always on his back foot in season one and season two during the actual games, like saying, like, why are they doing that now? Come up with a plan. And then Nate, who's doing the work, gets punished for having ambition. Every Nobody else gets punished on this show for having ambition. It's like a blind spot here that Nate's the bad guy that just decided that and they could never make him more interesting over the course of the season three. Anyway, I, I don't even know what they were trying to do here in this final episode and in this final season of the show. This is another criticism I'll make to the show in general. This basic idea that it's not about winning or losing, it's about playing the game. In general, I do agree with that. And with our children, obviously, I think that that is extremely important lesson, being in a team working as a team, having shared goals is incredibly important and a great life lesson to have. And considering that our children, 99.5% of them are never going to make it, even to have a college scholarship from their athletic abilities, the fact they're going to practice every single day and then become professional athletes is an impossibility for the vast majority of them. It is very important to teach them that that is not the most important thing. Winning, succeeding at all costs is not the most important thing. And once again, from an after-school special perspective, if this was the bad news bears, I completely and utterly agree with that philosophy. But some of what we've seen in Lasso, especially in this past season, shot a while ago, but of course gets echoed in Giannis's recent commentary when the Bucks got shocked out of the playoffs recently, that shock loss. Giannis's response to a journalist that was saying, is this season a failure? Once again, I agree with his commentary that having achieved so much, having gotten that close, having barely lost, there's a lot of achievements in there individually as a team. There's a lot of growth to come from this potential loss. So his reaction, his comments are very valuable message. But the overall reaction was kind of how my reaction is to Lasso in this season, where it's like, who cares? That's not important. <laughs> and Lasso kind of has that same attitude. Multiple times in this season, he seems to be like, hey, guys lost this week. I mean, they have a string of losses. And they're like, ah, doesn't matter. Oh, but we do want to get the superstar. And then they start winning. And it's like, oh, this is cool. And then they start losing again. And he's just like, none of this matters. They just have to be the best versions of, the, of themselves. None of this makes any sense in the context of the season of the show. Obviously, it matters to Rebecca. Obviously, it does matter to the players. And him just kind of shrugging his shoulders whenever they lose is not good coaching. I'm sorry. It's not good coaching. There is absolutely a conversation to have about reforming what we define as a win and as a loss, this toxic winner-takes-it-all mentality. Absolutely something that needs to be reevaluated. But the idea that these players desperately want to win, they want to make their family, they want to make their community proud, they know they can do this. Lasso's response to them is, eh, don't worry about it so much. It, it, to me, is kind of insulting to the people for which this matters so much. And I'm not sure that is the right kind of positive message. The interesting part of season two of the show is that there was a sense that there is a conversation to be had about that toxic positivity. And this show embraces that same toxic positivity here in the finale of the show. And it wants it both ways. It wants it to be 
None of this really matters, guys. In the long run, just be good men. Woo, we got promoted. We did what no one said we could do. It, it talks out of both sides of his mouth constantly. And I think it's just unfocused and sloppy, to be honest. And <laughs> there's a whole slew of other egregious things that I can point to. I know so many people who are so vested in who is Keeley going to pick at the end. At least they were smart enough to dodge that bullet. And now I can nitpick the show and let me try to not be that negative. <laughs> I will say two things that I have to call out because they really, really annoyed me. Okay, I'm going to make it three. <laughs> I'm going to make it three. First of all, Brett Goldstein playing Roy Kent. <laughs> I feel terrible for this actor who came up with this voice for Roy Kent, who barely spoke in season one, and then has to do these long monologues in this affected voice. <laughs> I feel pity for him. It's a decision that was made in the show early on. <laughs> He's hoisted by his own petard there, but <laughs> that's just how it went. His voice, vocal tick, really bothered me. That one just elicits more sympathy for me than anything else, because <laughs> he probably never expected he would have to read this much dialogue with that silly voice. He should have like kind of slowly <laughs> over time have eased off of it so that he could get through his dialogue more easily. Okay, on an even more negative point, Brendan Hunt. I know these are writers on the show as well. I'm sure they're good writers. I, they know they have long resumes. But as far as being in front of the camera, Brendan Hunt playing Coach Beard, once again, a little bit, a little sprinkle of Coach Beard in season one, like one sight gag per episode. Like, what's up with that dude over there? Funny. To have episodes revolve around him, to have him be the moral compass of the show. Like, oh my God, get this guy off my screen. I, I do not want to see this character anymore. I'm done. <laughs> I mean, I was done with it way before the finale of the show. And my third most egregious era here in season three, we already have Rebecca, a character I like, by the way, this actress as well, and a beautiful singing voice, as we've seen previously. But Hannah Waddingham playing Rebecca, not only do they embarrassingly put her into this relationship that once again, gender swapped would outrage viewers, but is cool and romantic because of the way it's framed in season two. But then they have her have an anonymous encounter in Amsterdam, which comes full circle by the finale. Of course, you knew that was going to happen. Decides to like, let's not exchange names or anything. It's magical. That whole thing is so contrived, but way more contrived than all of that is that they spend that whole night together. And in the morning, she's like, did we have sex? Did, did we? Did we? <laughs> like, what is going on in this show that is supposed to be cute that you don't know if you had sex with the person the night before or not? Just cute, you know? Very cute. Like, how would she not know? Did she get... I mean, she had like, a couple of glasses of wine with him, fine. But she didn't remember the rest of the night? Like, did he, did he dose her or something? How is that happening? This is just questions that the show obviously did not want me asking. But what the hell was going on in some of these episodes? <laughs> I am planning to la launch a Patreon or some, an alternative, by the way, and maybe I will have my top 20 head-scratching moments of watching Ted Lasso. So maybe that is bonus content for the future. Who knows? Okay. I'm going to stop bagging on this show and move on to the actual breakdown of the finale of Barry. New deal. I walk away right now. You'll never hear from me again. All you have to do is admit that you killed Christopher. Admit that you fucked up. Admit that you were scared, that you hate yourself, that there's some days you don't think you deserve to live. And the only thing that'll make you forget is by being someone else. It was the love of my life. I know. It wasn't supposed to happen. It never is. I just wanted to be safe. We all do. The series finale of Barry is written and directed by Bill Hader, like the whole season has been. It's an episode called Wow. I believe it's uppercase W, Wow, which is the first uppercase, <laughs> if you want to look at the title breakdown, of the entire season, of the entire series, perhaps. As the episode begins, Fuchs is taking a nice tub in that luxurious house that Hank initially provided to him. They're on the outs, of course, after he accused Hank of killing off Cristobal intentionally. And then in retaliation, Hank <laughs> tried to blow up his house with all his men and himself and his girlfriend in it and her daughter. Hank, trying to make amends here, says, I can get you Barry. Of course, this is the only thing that Fuchs has been interested in is reconnecting with Barry. We're not sure what his intentions are up until this point. Hank is FaceTiming with him. And just as he's about to hang up, he thinks this is all a ploy. 
He shows that he has Sally, but way more importantly, he has John, Barry's son as well. And there's something in his look here. Of course, he remembers Barry as a boy. We saw those flashbacks to when they met earlier in the season of television. And maybe empathetically seeing another young man who's in danger, who needs a father figure. And of course, the way he mistreated and abused his relationship with Barry. Hank and Sally have an interesting interaction here. You came to LA looking for him, didn't you? Let me guess. You were in a bad place and you felt like he was the only one who could help you. Good luck. I mean it. Hank. What's going to happen to us? It's not for me to decide. It's not for Hank to decide what's going to happen to them. He's leaving it up to fate. Also, interestingly, this alignment between Hank and Sally here, that they both relied on Barry to rescue them when they were at their lowest, to make them feel safe. And he, Hank, feels betrayed by what Barry's done. And Sally now, of course, in a situation needing to rely on him once again. Barry has gone straight from Jim's house back to the Walmart <laughs> to load up on weapons. This is very funny. He has them crisscrossed across his back. He's obviously furious. A little commentary here on the gun culture in the country. A very grim joke, of course. Overtly looking like he's about to run out and use those weapons. But hey, he can buy weapons. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> he's got a driver's license. I don't think he could do that in California, though. So he must be <laughs> outside of California. I don't know if he knows a place to go. This is very funny, though. We follow him from inside the store to outside the store. Like I mentioned, he has semi-automatic rifles strapped across his back and struggles to get into the driver's seat. He's sitting on top of these guns. They're not the best way to carry this, I don't think, but uh, all played for laughs here. And in an episode that doesn't have many laughs, by the way, Gene sees a news broadcast saying that the Janice Moss murder case is being reopened and they're investigating Gene as the mastermind. And Jim Moss is there, by the way, part of this press conference as well. Meanwhile, John and Sally still awaiting Barry's arrival. Sally has this very honest conversation with John, explains to him that they're not good people. Barry's killed people. She's killed people. And there's a very touching embrace here between the two of them, especially because she has shown absolutely no affection for him this entire time. I don't think she's trying to be cruel to him. I think she's just shell-shocked by being in this circumstance, honestly. And we know that because she keeps having these hallucinations, basically, about killing her attacker back at the end of season three. Something that is eight years past, but still obviously haunting her. Hughes and all his men arrive at Noho Ball, the Noho Ball lobby. Hank is there, of course, with his men. And Barry is en route. And then for me, we get the actual payoff of this whole entire show. Fuchs tells Hank, new deal. I leave you alone. You just have to give me John. We're not sure at this moment what the intentions are with John, of course. It could be nefarious, but doesn't seem to be considering what he says to Hank. He wants him to confess that he killed Cristobal. And everything he says here about how you pretend to be somebody else to run away from the reality of what's happened, honestly, is Fuchs his own self-assessment and what he's done to Barry and his understanding of it now. And Hank says he was scared. He just wanted to be safe. And he allowed, of course, Cristobal to die. He doesn't admit it at that moment, but he does have this emotional reaction. And these actors are both doing great work, by the way, did great work across this entire series. Anthony Carrigan here, especially as Hank. I mean, Stephen Root is such a well-known character actor, so recognizable, even if you don't know him by name, because he's been in so many things, Coen Brothers movies and many other things as well, constantly working. But I really do hope that Anthony Carrigan continues to get a lot of work. He has such a unique look, obviously, which could be limiting as well, but has proven himself to be such an incredible and versatile actor here in the show. I really do hope he continues to find a lot of work. What a discovery here on the show for sure. And these are his final moments. But in a lot of ways, this is what the whole show has been leading up to. 
if we look at Succession as a show that basically says that people cannot change, I think that in Fuchs, we are seeing here someone who has potentially come to this realization. Maybe it takes this level of extremes <laughs> for that moment to come. Hank approaches that same personal revelation, but then he can't cross that threshold. As he's about to exchange John, Sally also catches her breath, afraid of what his plans might be. Hank changes his mind, grabs John back. No deal. Fuchs pulls out a gun, shoots him. And then we get this incredibly well-designed and <laughs> somewhat comedic shootout among all the gang members. My favorite detail is the grenade at the very end that takes out the remainder of the guys who weren't shot. And in the aftermath, everyone's injured. Most of these men are dead. But where is John? He's under Fuchs. Fuchs has actually protected him with his body. Sally is calling out as John is escort escorted out. Fuchs may have turned over somewhat of a new leaf, but his affinity only goes so far. And seeing John, and of course, that directly correlating to Barry as a teenage boy as well, or as a younger man as well, it does not extend to Sally, who he leaves behind. This is when Barry arrives outside of the NoHo Hank office complex and reunites with John. And Barry sees Fuchs in the shadows, and Fuchs disappears into the shadows. And Hank is sitting at the feet of that crystal ball statue. And in his final moments, as he dies, he's reunited with crystal ball, holding hands. Sally is still calling out this moment, but it does look like Barry didn't just run off with John. <laughs> he did go and reclaim her. She doesn't seem to be injured severely here anyway. So I'm not sure why she wasn't able to exit on, on her own volition. Regardless, here they are in the hotel that night. Sally sees that Jean's getting arrested as the mastermind of the conspiracy to kill Janice Moss. The whole family sharing a bed and Barry sleeping soundly. He seems to sleep very soundly. <laughs> he does not have any weight on his shoulders, although that's not true. We have seen some of the visions he's had. He does have a tormented psyche. Sally says Jean should not take the fall. You need to turn yourself in. Yeah, I don't think that's what God wants for me. I went in there tonight prepared to die, and for some reason he spared me. Honey, I've been redeemed. The only way to be redeemed is by taking responsibility for what you did. And the only way to do that is by turning yourself in. You're tired. I'm tired. It's been a long day. In the morning, we'll get out of L.A., regroup. We'll figure out the next chapter of our lives. He, of course, has rationalized all of this. God doesn't have this plan for them. He's not going to turn himself in. Of course, we all do this to some extent. We rationalize our own decisions. <laughs> this is just an extreme example of that. But you see Sally's face. She is fully aware now that this is never going to end in this hell forever. And we know what her decision is going to be. But Barry, of course, not good at reading people, by the way, doesn't see that. She turns her back on him. But in the morning, of course, she's left with John. Jean's at home still, up all night, has been looking at all the news coverage, sees an article with his son, who has turned his back on him as well, thinks that he was shot because he knew about the bag of money that Jean gave him. And he's about to kill himself. He still has that gun that Rip Torn gave him. <laughs> and he's become much more proficient at shooting it. The first time he tries to use it with Barry, it literally falls apart in his hands. Then he shoots through the door and shoots his son, almost kills him. And maybe he's been practicing because he's an even better shot now. Barry arrives just as this is happening. Barry was convinced that Sally headed to Jean's house. He knows she's been there before and believes she may have gone back there. Bill Hader, who I think intentionally has removed himself from the show most of the over the course of this season, does a great job here. You saw all the shades of Barry here. We see why we have continued to be sympathetic to him in this moment, in his performance. He's, I'm looking for a blonde woman, a little boy. He just keeps repeating himself over and over again. Tom, terrified when he arrives, just trying to talk him down. And you see as the camera pushes in on Hater playing Barry, his face starts to soften. He starts getting more and more concerned. He's losing his family. And this is when Tom mentions, in a way, it's good that you came here because you need to talk to Gene. I think he's going to hurt himself. And all of this, the weight of this finally is catching up to Barry at this moment. And now softened in his demeanor, he says, you should call the cops. I need to turn myself in. And at that moment, he gets shot in the chest by Gene. Gene's emerged from his room with the gun in hand, and we get the title of the episode. Oh, wow. Barry had never even considered that Gene was <laughs> the threat 
that he ends up being here, but the worm has turned and the second bullet goes right to his head and we cut the black momentarily. And we hear the police arriving, Gene sitting next to Barry's corpse, surrounded by those creepy puppets. We jump ahead at least 10 years, I would guess, at least 10 years. Sally works at a college as a theater professor. She gets hit on by one of the other teachers and she's just like, oh no, thank you. I'm, <laughs> I don't know if she has a completely sexless, sexless life now. She's not interested in pursuing this guy. Or maybe he's not bad boy enough. I mean, she seems to have been attracted mostly to dangerous men. So who knows what her personal life is. I assume she is just content having the options of acting and being in the world again, considering what she's just escaped. She lets her son stay out with his friend that night. And we're wondering, what could this possibly be? Are they going to go out? Is there going to be some dangerous shenanigans? Is he going to end up getting into trouble? Is there going to be some dark side of John that we're going to be revealed here in these final moments? But no, he's just going to his friend's house to see a movie that Sally has not wanted him to see, a movie called The Mask Collector, <laughs> all about Gene Cousineau. If you remember, he talks about collecting masks. That's what he does. And in this TV movie, I guess it's too violent to be a TV movie. It's probably an actual movie, although the production is pretty cheesy in the way it's conveyed. We see that Gene is the villain here. According to this fictionalized version of the story, Barry was a hero. He found out what Gene was up to, tried to take him down, was framed by Gene. And this is the story that has been concocted by the Hollywood machine. And we see on John's face, a moment of acceptance and some pride about his dad. And that's where the show in and of itself ends. Okay, so what does this finale say about Barry? Okay, I'll get the negatives out of the way. The thing in this season of the show, and especially here in the finale, that bothered me so much is this show has a Jim Moss problem. They have created this character to have nearly superhuman abilities. And over the course of the show, we've never seen him not behave like the smartest person in the room, always. He is a human lie detector. He knows when Gene is lying. He has captured Fuchs. He's been able to make his captors in the past kill themselves just with his words. He can reprogram that journalist to speak only German, <laughs> like literally break his mind. And then he leaves Barry alone in the house. I had suspected that Barry's aversion to the blood was some programming that Jim had given him. But no, it was just his reaction to seeing his own blood. Really? Seems like an odd reaction. And how come he's never had an aversion to blood previously? Jim left him there alone. Jim, supposedly, when we see later on where he's at the press conference, must have known at that point that Barry had left the house. And he's going along with the story that Gene is the mastermind. He knows about Fuchs. He's hung out with Fuchs. He questioned Fuchs. And how about Albert? Theoretically, we don't need to have Albert in this season of the show, but if a case is prosecuted, wouldn't Albert come out and talk about what he knew about the Barry case and how Gene couldn't have been this mastermind because Barry knew Fuchs before he knew Gene? Sally, of course, must have kept her mouth shut, which makes her a less sympathetic character. She wants to rescue Jean. She still could have rescued Jean by testifying. She does have skin in the game in a different way, propping up Barry's story. She does allow John to have this fantasy version of her dad, but then refuses to let him watch that movie. And I do find this a little sloppy, honestly, for such a well-written show and well-realized show in general, it doesn't have these kind of logical character holes. It has a lot of bizarre stuff that happens. Don't get me wrong. It goes straight up into the surreal. We may never understand what happened in that house with Sally. Was that all in her mind? Some aspect of it was for sure. So what was happening in that sequence? Bizarre, surreal, straight up experimentation. Okay. That's part of Barry's bread and butter. But these incongruous plot holes in character, we don't normally see. And foundationally, like I said, Jim is the issue. Albert might just be so far away removed from the story that he doesn't come back, although it seems out of character for him. Sally may have a reason to protect Barry's story because she might not want to have 
that full revelation to her son, although she has already told him. So she seems like ready to actually be upfront about all of that. And she does run away from Barry, right? Like if she takes John away from Barry and they run off the next day, like she does at the end of this episode, then what does she tell John? Your dad's a hero and he would never be violent unless he was being manipulated by Gene. And in the end, Barry was the hero who was just trying to take Gene down. That's why he did these bad things. He only killed these mobsters that Gene was working with. If that's the story she's trying to sell, then why would she run away from Barry? Why would she be afraid of Barry? These are all questions I don't want to be asking because this is not what the show is about. And I don't want to be asking these questions. And unfortunately, the show makes me ask these questions because it left all these plot holes open. On the positive side, there is thematics here. Obviously, Bill Hader has openly said this in interviews about the season of the show. He's making fun of this toxic culture in Hollywood, the need to turn everything into a neat narrative, the way that horrible things happen to people and they turn into true crime podcasts and then true crime television shows or documentaries on Netflix and then true crime prestige adaptations on HBO, a path that we've seen over and over again. I'm sure there will be a movie about Adnan Syed in the future with an all-star cast. It's already been a multiple documentaries and most multiple podcasts, and I'm sure it will continue to be a moneymaker. And although something good came out of that, getting closer to the truth of that possible crime and a deeper exploration of how these investigations go, which kind of has opened people's eyes to a lot of that. On the negative side, it is still turning a human tragedy, an actual dead person into an entertainment product. Hater's aware of this, and he is commenting on it here in the show. And there is a sweet irony here that that movie at the end completes Barry's vision of reframing his own story for his son. Think back to earlier in the season where Hader is talking about his career in the military and he sits down on the stairs with his son and then says, no, actually, let's walk over here. On It's better over here. So he's creating this narrative. He's selling it to his son. And then the powers that be, the engines of industry that want to turn this story into its most easily digestible version of itself, finish what Barry started and are more successful at it than, of course, Barry was. Of course, the one person who ends up in an absolutely horrible circumstance here at the end of the show is Gene, who takes the blame for this. And I can completely imagine Gene, who was suicidal, basically just accepting his fate and swallowing his pride and just saying, look, I don't have my son anymore. I don't have a life anymore. I'm an old, broken man, and I just want the story to be over. So I can imagine him embracing his fate, but it still doesn't explain how the truth of this wouldn't have come out with even a cursory investigation. <laughs> so that's my negative. I'm going to keep harping on this. If you listen to this podcast and heard me go off on the terrible finale or some of the terrible decisions in the finale of Yellow Jackets, you know I was annoyed by that plot point too in the fact that, for example... If Fuchs is wiring money to Barry when he murders each one of these people, and this is happening for years before anything happens with Gene, then how was Gene the puppet master this whole entire time? It doesn't make any sense. And it's not even like an ironic twist in a way that it has a comedic payoff. It's logical if you just basically accept that, oh yeah, all the cops are dumb. Cops can be dumb just like anybody else can be dumb. And it's funny when people in power act stupidly, but just the fact that well, of course that would happen because everybody's dumb. It's like, well, <laughs> not always. Not everybody's dumb, right? Some people are smart sometimes and you can't fool everybody all the time, as they say. So yeah, I just don't buy the wrap up here. And I feel like it's to get to that destination, to that ironic twist at the end. Uh, a more ironic twist that I would have appreciated more would be seeing Gene in prison, playing like a Hannibal Lecter type, embracing the fact that he is supposedly a criminal mastermind and now he gets to play that role. It could be something that he would enjoy playing for the rest of his life. People would be interviewing him. He gets to build up his own mythology and scare everybody for the rest of his life. That would be a fun ending for Gene. He may even appreciate it, but that's not what the show cares about at all. So it doesn't give us that. And I get the point it's making. I agree with it to a large extent, but I just feel like it got there in a very clumsy way. Nonetheless, this is a terrific season of television with, for my money, a disappointing finale. And it's almost there. 
It just has some missing missing parts. They could have cleaned up that finale a little bit more, made the episode a little longer. If Ted Lasso can have a one hour and 20 minute wrap up, Barry could have had a 45 minute wrap up and we could have gotten a couple more of those character beats to tie all of this up. So yeah, a little bit disappointing, but I would rewatch this show, by the way, even with the somewhat disappointing finale for me. All right, stay tuned for that silo recap episode, which is coming later this week. And we will continue to cover Silo through the rest of June. I'm going to try to see that Spider-Man film this weekend as well. And maybe I'll give you a review of that at the same time. Thanks again for listening, everybody.